Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. We got a strange passage in front of us, don't we? Um, one of the things, though, I love about preaching through books of the Bible like, like, like we do here is that um, it kind of forces us to, 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 to tackle passages like this. Like when we started going through the Gospel of Mark a few months ago, we, you know, we said we're going to go through Mark. We're going to go through the book of Mark chapter by chapter. And one of the helpful things about going through a book of the Bible like that is that we can't avoid the hard parts, we can't avoid the weird parts. I have to talk about whatever comes up in the scriptures. I don't get to pick and choose whatever's the easiest to swallow or, or talk about in our texts. The Bible tells us that all of God's word is divinely inspired and that it's all useful to us. And so my job is just to deliver it to you, to lead us in digging into it and finding what the Lord might have to say to us and, and share with us uh, each Sunday morning. Amen. And so in Mark chapter 5, we have here in front of us one of the, the strangest and most fascinating accounts in all of the New Testament. It's actually the most vivid, the most detailed, the most descriptive accounts in all of the Bible of an exorcism of demons. And so that's what we're looking at and unpacking this morning. You guys ready? And so we're looking here at the first 20 verses in the chapter. We just read the first 15, but we're going to look at the first 20. And at this point, for context, Jesus and his disciples, they had just left the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, right? Jesus was a Jew. 
His disciples were Jews. He came to be the Messiah of the Jews. And so when he started his ministry, he started in the region that he sort of came from, his sort of hometown region. And now Jesus and his disciples have just left that region. They left the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, and they've crossed over to the non-Jewish side. Uh, Last week, we talked about how they hit a storm uh, in the midst of it and how Jesus calmed that storm, just exercising his power over the natural order. And so what we have here, just for context, is Jesus and his disciples, they've sort of voyaged from the rural Galilee Jewish region all the way now they're going to this urban Greco-Roman region. Uh, We find out that this place is called the Decapolis, which literally means 10 cities. And this is more, this, this, this kind of transition here, crossing the Sea of Galilee, this is a lot more than a change in scenery. It's a lot more than just a change in location. This is actually a turning point in a turning point moment in the mission of Jesus. This is a turning point for him. You see, because in moving from Galilee to the Decapolis and moving from the rural area to the urban area, from the Jewish region to the non-Jewish region, We see now that Jesus came not just to be the Messiah of the Jews, but the Messiah of the world, the Redeemer of the world, the Savior of all. Jesus doesn't just love one nation. He doesn't just love one race or one type of people. He loves all nations and all people groups. His salvation is not just for those in Galilee, but also for those in the Gerasenes and the Decapolis in Rome. For those all throughout the rest of the Near East and down through Africa as 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 the gospel spreads from there. And then eventually through the West, throughout Asia, across oceans, even on down to 2018, Orange County, where we're at today. Like this is the turning point in Jesus's mission where he's bringing it from his home region and he starts to bring it to the rest of the world. And so this was a decisive point in his mission. And the first thing that Jesus encounters at this turning point in his mission, when he steps out of the boat and onto the shore, is the presence of pure evil. It's the first thing he encounters. You see, because when God's kingdom attempts to push forward, you have darkness and evil that attempts to push back. And that's what we're diving into here in Mark chapter 5. We're going to unpack three points in this passage. First, we're going to look at the reality of demonic evil. Secondly, the destructive nature of demonic evil. And lastly, the power of Jesus over demonic evil. Let's look at that first one, the reality of demonic evil. Starting from the top, again, this passage has very vivid details. I want you to try and picture it as we're reading this, beginning in verse 1. It says, they, the disciples, came to the other side of the sea with Jesus. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Now, what does it, what does Mark mean here by unclean spirit? Glad you asked. The word unclean here actually has less to do with the idea of sort of like dirtiness, which is what we tend to think about, right? When we think of unclean hands, we think, okay, we got dirty hands, we got nasty hands, right? With dust and grime and slime on there. And so 
But when, when this word here in the original Greek, that word unclean there is used, it has less to do with that idea of dirtiness and nastiness, and it has more to do with this idea of intrusiveness. All right? You following? Has this idea of intrusiveness, this idea that, that there is something that should not be on this man that has sort of invaded him. All right? This idea that in the depths of this man's soul, an outside presence has dirtied him, sullied him. Something that doesn't belong has tainted this man's soul. There's a dark spiritual force that has invaded him and sort of ravaged his mind, his body, and his soul. Later on in this passage, we see he's described as demon-possessed. And so that's what it means to be, uh, have an unclean spirit. And here Jesus has this fascinating encounter with a, a demon-possessed man with demons. Now, there's a, there's a recent poll I read that said that about half of Americans believe in the existence of a devil, of demons, or some type of supernatural personal force of evil. So what that tells us is that means that half of the country probably thinks that most of us here are crazy, Right? Most people don't even believe uh, that there is even, there's a lot of people that don't even believe that there is such a concept as objective evil. You know, they think that evil is sort of this construct, this, this idea that we've come up with to try and make sense of the bad things that happen. According to uh, expert philosopher Susan Neiman, who wrote about this about 10 years ago, uh, she says that, that, you know, this line of thinking of rejecting the idea of evil this line of thinking has been plaguing philosophers for hundreds and hundreds of years. She says, it wasn't really until the atrocities of Auschwitz in World War II with the concentration camps, it wasn't until the revealing of the atrocities of what happened there that philosophers like, started recognizing, like, okay, maybe we need a category for thinking of this. For several hundred years, philosophers were kind of had this main, this overall consensus that there's no such thing as objective evil until they're faced with something like World War II and concentration camps and specifically Auschwitz. And all of a sudden, the philosophers are like, all right, we, we need a category to make sense of this, right? And the reason they kind of struggled with that is because, you know, the influence of what we call naturalistic secularism, and you have to bear with me. I know these sounds like nerdy words, but trust me. It, it, it'll make sense, and I think it's helpful for us to understand. The influence of naturalistic secularism in our culture has really tried to strip away for the last several hundred years any category of thinking that acknowledges the spiritual world that we live in. It's naturalistic, and so they reject anything that has to do with the supernatural. And so we provide sociological reasons for the way that we behave, scientific reasons for the way that things work, psychological reasons for the way that we think. And none of those are bad in and of themselves. Those are all really helpful categories to think of, but we have to recognize that there is more going on than just those. There's more going on than just that. Like when you actually stop to take a moment to sort of zoom out, to take a step back to get a broad perspective on tragedies or to see the scope of suffering that just goes on in our world, then suddenly we're okay with speaking in categories outside of natural explanations. Suddenly we're okay with saying that things are evil. So when terrorists attacked our nature, nation, hundreds of people lose their lives. We, we call that an act of 
evil. When those in power, whether it's in politics, whether it's in corporations, whether it's even in the church and clergy, when those in extreme power exploit those underneath them, and it gets revealed to us, it gets exposed, we look at that, we point our fingers and we say, that is evil. When the vulnerable are taken advantage of, children, we call it evil, we call it wicked, demonic. When you have another school shooting, like we did this week, like we just prayed for, politicians on the left, on the right, governors, teachers, police officers, everyone, if you read all of the headlines, if you, if you skim through the, the stories, you'll see that word again and again and again, evil. This is evil. Vulnerable children slaughtered by one of their own. We have no problem calling that evil, calling that wicked or, or even demonic. And that's because it is. It is. Naturalism alone doesn't give us enough categories to make sense of the dark things in the world that we live in. And yet the scriptures address this head on. The scriptures expose the tragic reality of evil, and we see that highlighted in this text. You see, the Bible tells us that in addition to the effects of sin on our world, the fact that the world is broken and that us as individuals, that is, that our souls are broken, the Bible also tells us that there are spiritual forces at play. There are spiritual forces at work sort of behind the scenes here. Now, that doesn't mean that we diminish the physical. Like sometimes there are physical problems with the mind that can be treated with medication, physiological problems. But sometimes we have to acknowledge that there's also spiritual issues at play. That's why Paul in Ephesians tells us that it's not primarily flesh and blood that we wrestle with, but cosmic powers, he says, and spiritual forces of evil. I think one of the reasons that some of us don't believe in, in like the devil or personal evil is because we think of the demonic or we think of the devil as a, a, when, when we try and picture him, get a concept of him, we kind of get this pop culture image in our head of him, right? Like the devil is this dude with red skin, pointy beard, this trident looking thing in his hand. And uh, for the record, I don't believe in that image of the devil either, Right? But others might deny the existence of the devil because of what C.S. Lewis calls and coined chronological snobbery. And that's when you have basically this, on, when you're a chronological snob, you basically have this ongoing working assumption that any idea from the past must be a primitive myth just on the sheer fact that it's old. But I love the way that G.K. Chesterton addresses that. He says, you know, centuries don't make the truth go away. Centuries don't make the truth go away. There's an old saying coined by Charles Baudelaire. Um, he's not a Lemony Snicket's character, but he's a famous French poet from the 19th century. And he said, the devil's best trick is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. Classic quote. It's, it's quoted in The Usual Suspects. The devil's best trick is to persuade you that he does not exist. While some ideas are just fads that sort of come and go, the words of Scripture are eternal and timeless and reveals to us that there are dark forces at play. I mean, you can choose to admit that and acknowledge that or not, but there are dark forces at play. The Scriptures reveal to us that there is a spiritual realm at play in the background. 
There are demonic influences at work. The spiritual battle is real. And this is why the scriptures remind us that we have an enemy who prowls around like a lion seeking to devour us, just like what happened to the man in this passage. And that's what the dark forces do to this man. They basically devoured his mind, body, and soul. It leads us to our next point. I want us to see now the destructive nature of demonic evil. The destructive nature of demonic evil. Continue in verse 3 with me. Remember, this vivid picture right here of, demon, of what demonic evil can do. Read, read in verse 3. It says that this man, he lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore. So they've tried, but they can't do it anymore. Not even with a chain. For he had often been found with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. We'll stop right there. This scene is nuts. It's crazy, right? This scene is nuts. We see here pure demonic evil embodied in this man. This dude is in a scary situation in all sorts of ways. I mean, his craziness was legendary in the area. Like the kids were probably in the region, the kids in the neighborhoods were probably told, stay away from the tombs, right? Stay away from that guy. Stay away from the crazy demonized man who's crawling around the graves. The nearby town that he's from, they gave up on this guy. It says that they tried to bind him again and again, probably to protect himself, but also to protect them and their children. And it says that he just broke the shackles again and again. He would break, break the shackles. And so now he's just kind of running around, crawl, crawling around, and they, they just avoid him. He stays in the tombs and they just avoid him. He's in a bad and hopeless place. He's howling like a wolf. He's yelling. He's cutting himself. He's living in tombs, which were basically back then, the tombs were just caves full of bodies. And he's living there. And this man, in this man, you see a, a, a sort of physical snapshot, physical embodiment of what, evil does to a person. This is one of the worst possible pictures that you can imagine happening to a person, isn't it? His humanity has been destroyed. His humanity has been ravaged and stripped away by pure evil. That's what the demonic does. That's what evil does. It strips away at your identity. It strips away at who God intended you to be. Now, I want us to read on. At this point, it says, Jesus rolled up to the shore with his disciples. He steps onto the shore, and this guy just charges at him. Read verse 6. It says, when he, the, 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 the demon-possessed man, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran. He charged, he ran and fell down before Jesus. You see, this man who everyone in town was afraid of now runs to Jesus and starts begging for mercy. We found out in verse 9 that he's called legion, which is a Roman military term that means about 6,000 soldiers. He says, my name is legion for we are many. Now that should startle you. 
That should startle you. When he says that name, Legion, and when, when, when the people there are hearing this, when the disciples with Jesus are hearing him, this demon-possessed man say, my name is Legion, for we are, 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 are many, like that, should, that startled them. Because this tells us that the poor man has been enslaved by an entire army consisting of thousands and thousands of demons. In verses 15 through 18, when it describes the man as demon-possessed, we have the Greek word there, um, damo nizomai. This Greek word damo nizomai is literally the verb to be demonized, to have been demonized. So this man who's possessed by demons has been demonized. Now, now why does that matter? It's because when we hear about demon possession, we think of sort of like pop culture references, right? We think child's play, the conjuring, the exorcism of Emily Rose, right? That's, what, that's sort of the picture that we have. Just these crazy, gnarly scenes in our heads. But demonic influence in the scriptures are actually seldom like that. It's normally a process of one who has been demonized. That verb is a process, Verse 3 says, earlier we read that no one could bind him anymore. And so that tells us they used to be able to bind him, right? They used to be able to bind him, but they can't anymore. There's this process going on of demonic influence that increased as his life went on. That slowly ravaged his body and his mind more and more and more until he gets to the point that he's at today. Now that should give us this, this picture of us that this man has a story. He has a past. Like this man was once a child. This man was once a citizen. He was once a neighbor of the people that tried to shackle him. He was once a regular dude. But now he's been devoured by demonic forces over time and he's totally helpless apart from Christ. This is why we're warned in the scriptures that we need to be sober-minded to be watchful in 1 Peter 5. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And this man who's being devoured is just com completely enraptured by the presence of evil. And what we need to see in this text is that evil in its nature is destructive, all right? Evil in its nature is destructive. And when we think of evil, we, we tend to think of categories of like what happens out there, but there's also a sense of evil that destroys us as individuals, that can destroy families, that can destroy friendships, that can destroy churches. Evil in its nature is destructive. Sin is destructive. It seeks to devour. You know what the goal of evil is? The goal of evil is to destroy and to distort the image of God in human beings. It seeks to destroy and distort the God-given dignity, the image of God in human beings. What is the image of God? The Bible tells us that every human being whether you're a Christian or not, doesn't matter what you're, you're, every human being, no matter what nation you come from, what tribe you come from, what religion you grew up in, every single human being is, is, is born with a sense of dignity by the sheer fact that we are all made in God's image. 
The image of God has to do with our capacity to know God and to live in ways that are pleasing to him, to be drawn into a relationship with him, to be changed from the inside out, to look like Christ in our character, to live our lives for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. That's what the image of God is, is our capacity to live like that. And demons are hell-bent on distorting the image of God, on destroying our capacity to live that way. They're just hell-bent on distorting and keeping people from seeing glimpses of God's glory and for living that out. And so that is why totalitarian dictators rise up. That is why toxic leaders abuse the people under their care. This is why we have systemic problems of poverty and classism throughout our nation and throughout the world. It's why we have atrocities like suicide bombings and school shootings. Like the enemy loves to destroy, loves to distort, loves to, as 4 Peter 5 says, to devour. And for most of us, we see this play out in subtle ways in our daily lives too. Because remember, demonic influences are, are a process. Now you, you probably might not be in this, this place. I, I pray that you wouldn't, where you'd be like completely taken over. Your personality is taken over by demonic influences, like what happened to this man. But that doesn't negate the fact that there are dark forces that seek to, to thwart your pursuit of Christ, that seek to devour and distort the image of God in you. And we see this happen on a regular basis in our lives. I mean, the devil is called the accuser, and so he accuses you maybe with words like, you're a failure. You're not good enough. You're without hope. You are be beyond the love and the grace of God. Man, I've felt that in just in the last few weeks. The devil's an accuser. And these kinds of accusations, these kinds of lies result in negative self-talk, negative self-image that robs you of the sense of value and being that you have as a child of God in Jesus Christ. The scriptures say that the devil is also the divider of God's people. And so he influences your posture towards others. Where you become quick to gossip about another person quick to run to assumptions, to spread false lies. It might not seem evil if the person is not right in front of you, but it grows bitterness in you and self-righteousness in you and your heart is hardened. He's also called, the devil's also called the tempter. That's when you're tempted to sin against God or, or to sin against your neighbor to fudge on your taxes, to lie to get out of trouble, to, to maybe look at, uh, to, to, to maybe, uh, you know, uh, 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 entertain thoughts and ideas and, and dreams that you just maybe have no business of, of, of thinking, Look, uh, looking at websites that you have no business being on. He's the tempter. There are dark forces at play seeking to influence and distort the image of God in us. It starts subtle, just like it did with this guy. But then it grows, and then it grows. And if you're not careful, then it devours us as whole. It devours us whole. And that is what happened to this demon-possessed man. 
He had been so ravaged and destroyed by evil that he was now just a shell of his former self. He'd given himself over to the darker spiritual forces, and now he's completely hopeless apart from Jesus. Read on with me in verse 6. It says, When this man, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice. you got to picture this. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, when he says, I adjure you, that's another way of saying, I command you. So that's a massive moment of disrespect here. You don't charge the Messiah. You don't charge the son of God and command him things, right? You don't do that. You don't say, Jesus, let me tell you what to do. Remember, evil is always destructive. It's always against God, always opposed to him, always trying to distort what is good and pleasing to God. And that's why he tries to command Jesus. Yet at the same time, you got to love that this man here is pleading for mercy from the only one who can actually provide it. He's been tormented all his life by people and by demons. And here he somehow discerns that Jesus has the power, he has the key to help him. He discerns that Jesus has the power to destroy him when he says, don't torment me. But he also discerns that Jesus has the power to help him. Jesus will use his power not to destroy this man as he feared, but to liberate him. And that leads us to our last point, where I want us to see the power of Jesus over demonic evil. The power of Jesus over demonic evil. Start reading in verse 9 with me. It says, Jesus asked the man, he asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion. Right? This demonic voice. My name is Legion, for we are many. Right? And he begged him earnestly. This man begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him, the demons begged him saying, send us to the pigs instead, let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And this is for sure the craziest part of our text, right? You have to picture the intensity of what's going on here. This guy's got an army of demons He's legion, right? He's legion. He's naked. He's broken both physically and spiritually. He was once tied down in shackles and chains. He confronts Jesus and Jesus says, what's your name? And he replies, my name is legion for we are many. This whole scene is kind of nuts. And then Jesus ends up healing the guy, casting out those thousands of demons into a herd of pigs. And the pigs run off the cliff into the sea and there's bacon everywhere. And we're just like, what is going on? What is going on in this text? What is with the pigs, right? What is with the pigs? And we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to the pigs. But first, I want you to see two fundamental truths from this passage that was revealed that I don't want you to miss. One, spiritual battle is real. It is real. The battle between good and evil that many of us just kind of have this sense that there is this tension there. That battle is real. The second thing I want us to see here 
is that Jesus' power in the midst of that battle is unparalleled. Spiritual battle is real, but Jesus' power is unparalleled. Bible commentator on William Lane, or, or Bible commentator William Lane on this passage, he says, uh, he makes the point that Jesus' sovereign authority and the quality of the salvation that he brings finds a graphic illustration in this historic account. That's an understatement, right? He says, Jesus' sovereign authority, the power of Jesus, and the quality of the salvation that he brings, how wonderful it is, both of those things finds a very graphic illustration in this historic account. You see the demonic forces? They sought to destroy and devour this man's life, and they almost succeeded until Jesus. Until Jesus you see, with Jesus, the once enslaved man becomes liberated from his spiritual shackles. Jesus brought renewal. He brought restoration. He brought redemption. What the enemy once thought sought to destroy, Jesus makes new. What the enemy sought to devour, Jesus redeemed. And look, if you're a Christian here this morning, I understand that some of us here might not be, but, but if you're a believer this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, then we need to recognize that the enemy is seeking to distort any form of Christ-likeness in you. And so that's why bitterness in your heart turns into gossip, comes out into gossip. Lust in your heart turns into adultery. Pride turns into oppressing others. But if Jesus is sovereign over all evil, and we've seen here clearly that he is, if he really is sovereign over all evil, then every temptation that we face is a chance to pursue holiness. Every lie that is told is a chance to correct and declare truth. Every injustice that we experience is an opportunity to do good to your neighbor. Every accusation that the enemy tells us is an opportunity for us to turn and just delight in Christ and who you are in him. You see, the spiritual battle is real, but the power of Jesus is unparalleled. The nature of evil will not be defeated by human means. That's what we see here. The nature of evil, it, just, it won't be defeated primarily by human means. And so that means that you, with all your discipline, with all your intellect, with all your strength, with all your electrolytes that you drink, right? Like you're never going to defeat the negative forces, the powerful forces of evil on your life. You do not have what it takes to slay demonic powers. But praise God, because Jesus does. Jesus does. Only Jesus does. Read how the people respond to this now in verse 15. It says, all of this crazy stuff is happening. And it says, now they came to Jesus, the people in the community, they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, and they saw him sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Afraid of what? Why were they afraid? 
<laughs> they were afraid because they had just witnessed the unparalleled and unstoppable power of Jesus on full display. This was power like no one in this community had ever seen. Imagine what it must have been like for these onlookers. Imagine what it must have been like to, to see this man. Like they knew this guy. They knew this man, this demon-possessed man. They, he was the town nut job, right? He was the town demoniac. For years, they tried to subdue him, and now he's roaming naked, and he sleeps in the caves with the bones and the rotting bodies. But here in verse 15, now they see him clothed, and what does it say? With sound mind. That's a jarring contrast. That's a jarring contrast between the way he's described here and the way that he was described earlier. They probably had, in this guy himself, you got to imagine, he probably had his own shocked look on his face. You imagine that he, living all this time, ravaged by demons, you imagine what it must have felt like to be in his position, to, to, see the, the, to, to have been healed and to see the destruction of the pigs to see them destroyed, to see them go crazy, to go nuts, and for him to look at that and say, man, that was me. That was me. The demons that once ravaged his mind, body, and soul ravaged the swine off a cliff and into the sea. A scene like this should make us say two things. One, what a stark contrast. And two, what a great savior. What a great savior. This man was made a whole for the first time in ages by the mercy of Jesus. He was set free and liberated by the mercy of Jesus. When he came face to face with Jesus, he said, Jesus, don't torment me. Don't punish me for being possessed by these demons. He did not want to get tormented by Jesus. That was his fear. But Jesus actually heals him, shows mercy on him. This man experienced the full force of violent power at the hands of the enemy. But here he sits basking in the mercy and grace at the outstretched hands of Jesus. Part of the good news that we don't want to miss here is that Jesus was the great initiator in all of this. Jesus was the one who crossed the sea in order to reach those who weren't even looking for a savior. He was the Jewish Messiah going to a non-Jewish re region. He crossed the sea in order to reach those who weren't even looking for a savior. He engages the enemy in this man in, or, in order to destroy that enemy. He's like the great a great physician digging for the cancer in, for the cancer of our souls so that he can remove it. Ask this man. Ask this man about the initiating mercy of Jesus. He would say, "What a great savior. What a great savior." And what we see next is two ways that people respond to the liberating power of Jesus. First, People can reject Jesus because they don't like the living power, power that he brings. We look at verse 17. It says that they, the people, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The people began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They see his power. 
They see that he's unlike anyone that they've ever met before, and they're afraid of him. They're like, look, what are you going to, we saw what you did with this guy. What are you going to do to us? What are you going to do to our region? They probably heard the news about this, this, this Jewish rabbi that's causing a stir on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they're like, they, they see this miracle and they're like, oh no, what are you going to do? What are you going to disrupt in our lives? Right? He dis- Jesus disrupted the whole order of things on the other side of the sea. And they're like, oh no, that's great that you helped this guy, but we don't want you to disrupt our lives. Right? We see how powerful he is, and they were afraid. And so they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Jesus, we don't, we don't, that's great what you did for him, but we don't want that in our cities. We don't want that here in the Decapolis. That's one way people respond to him. Or number two, you can delight in his liberating power. You can display his transforming work. You can declare it to others, which is what we see happens to this man in verse 19 and 20. He tries to join Jesus. He tries to assume that now that he's saved and liberated, that he's going to join Jesus now. But Jesus tells him in verse 19, he tells this guy, no, don't come with me, but go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And then the man went away and began to proclaim to everyone in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And then what it says, everyone marveled. You see, this man... <laughs> What we see in this man is a picture of everyone who's ever been saved by the gospel of salvation. This man is the embodiment of a picture of everyone who has ever been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the gospel of salvation. Evil enslaves, sin enslaves, but Jesus saves. He saves. He liberates. And he doesn't just liberate us back to our old life. He gives us a new life. He gives us a new mission. This guy who was depressed and ravaged is now, can now delight in Jesus. He wants to spend time with Jesus. He says, Jesus, I want to join your posse. I want to go back in the boat with you. But Jesus says, no, go display your new freedom." Live in that freedom. Live as a liberated person, liberated from sin, liberated from evil. Live that out and now declare that good news to others. And that's what this man does. And so now I want us to bring us back to the question that's sort of burning in your minds. What's with the pigs? (laughs) Right? What's with the pigs? It almost seems like Jesus cut a deal with the demons, right? They're like, don't destroy us. Send us to the pigs. And so Jesus is like, all right, I'm going to permit you to do that. It's almost like they outsmarted Jesus. Like, oh, you know, he let us go to the pigs or he cut a a deal with them. But then when they enter the pigs, they just go nuts. Like either the the, the pigs go too crazy or the demons themselves can't handle their own rage. And then they, they, they go into the sea. And pigs are significant because pigs, for, uh, for, for Jewish people, were considered unclean, right? We see that in the Old Testament. Pigs were considered unclean. And so Jesus sends them into the pigs, into the uncleansliness, and they're cast into the sea. Now, do you guys remember what happened last week with the storm? Last week, Jesus, he exercised his sovereign power over the natural, right? The disciples are in a boat. 
the sea and the storm starts closing in. And Jesus tells us the, 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 the sea to be still. And it says the wind and the sea obey him. And everyone just marvels on the boat. And so last week we saw Jesus exercise his sovereign power over the natural. The wind and sea obey him. But here he's exercising his sovereign power over the supernatural. And last week we saw the sea threatened to swallow destroy and devour his disciples on the boats. The sea threatened to devour the disciples on the boat. And Jesus stepped into them, stepped into that moment to deliver them from the sea by a miracle. And now here, with the pigs being driven into the sea, now he drives a demonic army into that same sea to drown them. You following? So, Last week, a sea threatened to devour the disciples. Jesus stepped in to deliver them from the sea by a miracle, but now he drives evil into the sea to drown them. Bible commentary Mark Horn makes this brilliant uh, just insight. He says, just like Moses at the Red Sea, the enemy army is destroyed by the very means that God uses to transport his people across the water. It's mind-blowing. God uses the very thing that he used to transport his people across the water. He uses the sea, the sea that he commanded, that he has power over, the sea that Jesus used to bring them to redemption, to save them from the storm, is the same sea that he makes these unclean pigs perish in, that he sends the evil into. And that is just brilliant. That is brilliant because you see one day, one day Jesus would exercise his power over the demonic to the fullest degree. Here he defeated an army of demons with the sea. He saved the, he saved his people with the sea and he defeats evil now with the sea. Eventually he would do the same with the cross. Eventually, he would defeat evil itself on the cross. He would save his own people with the cross and in the same moment, defeat evil with that same cross. You see, there on the cross, Jesus takes this man's place. He takes this man's place. One day when Jesus hangs on the cross, he takes this man's place because on the cross, Jesus is the one who's stripped naked. On the cross, Jesus is the one howling, crying out begging. He's the one bleeding. He's the one that ends up in a tomb in our place for our sin so that we can be made free, so that we can be made liberated, so that we can be made new, made whole, restored to the image of God in Jesus Christ. The cross is the place of forgiveness from our sins, and it is also the place of victory over Satan's sin and death. It's the place of freedom. It's the means by which he destroyed the work of sin and death, and it is also the means by which he transports us as his people across to eternal life. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. 
If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.